just like a baby begotten in a mother's womb. And you look upon that child in the womb as your child, do you not? You might hold your stomach once it begins to kick a little bit and, oh, that's my baby. Dad will get hold there and they say, Mom, say, hey, come feel this. And, yeah, that's our baby. Well, it doesn't breathe yet. You haven't heard it talk. It doesn't crawl and it doesn't walk. But it's still your baby. And you look upon it that way. And that's why abortion really is a sin, because it is murder of that which has been engendered and is on its way to being a fully born human being. Now, God looks upon the process in the same way that once we are begotten of God through baptism and the laying on of hands, and His Spirit is symbolic of that of being begotten as a baby is when the seed of the father combines with the mother. And the spirit of God combines with the mind and the spirit that he placed within man. And that forms a life, a new life. We'll see that in just a moment. Even though we're the same person, you might be 18 or 88 when you're baptized. You're the same person either way. doesn't matter. But something has started within you that is different than what was. And since it is a spiritual condition that has been initiated, it proceeds over time and growth until you're ready to be born into the kingdom of God. We all understand this, but I want to point out that it is a process that goes onward, and how God looks upon it, first of all. That is, that once you are begotten of His Spirit and begin that spiritual life, that new life, not just your physical life, He looks upon it, in His mind, as a done deal. But you are going to look forward to being a part of his kingdom when you are born into it at the time of the first resurrection. And he looks upon us in the same way that we as parents look upon that lump in mommy's midsection, that it is going to be fulfilled. You don't sit around and think, well, this isn't going to happen. Uh, you've got a feeling it is going to happen pretty strong feeling it's going to happen. And God is that way. He wants us to be there, and He only called us according to His purpose. And then He committed Himself to working out His salvation in us. We cannot save ourselves. Now, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because we have a part in it. He says to grow, to overcome, to become more like Him, to think like Him, to walk like Him. That's our part. But we can't even do that without His help. We have to call on Him for help to keep His commandments, for help to guide our thoughts in the correct way. 
So really, it is his power and his spirit whereby we continue to grow, even as a child has to have succor from the mother. He has a tube where he's fed from mommy. And we, as potential spirit beings, have to be fed of God in order to grow to the point of spiritual birth or being born into the kingdom of God. So he does indeed point it out as a process. Now I'm headed somewhere with this, with this introduction for us to look at it as we go through some more scriptures <clears throat> a little later today and maybe tomorrow depending on how far I get. Have this mindset. Let's go again to 2 Corinthians 5. We were here just a few days ago when I talked about reconciliation, and that's what this is all about. From Adam and Eve until today, mankind being reconciled to God. Now, notice the language here in verse 17 in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, not creature, but a new creation is a better translation. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. Now that is a very, in a way, futuristic statement for God to make. All things are new. He makes the same statement in Revelation when he talks about his kingdom coming and said he'll make all things new. Well, people have thought that the whole earth, the orb, is going to burn up completely and become a charred cinder and be recreated newly. And I don't have time to go there today, but uh, there are plenty of scriptures to indicate that that is not the case. Uh, it will not all burn up in that way as we used to think in Worldwide years and years ago. And I went through that very uh, carefully in that series on how, uh, how exclusive is the church and showed those scriptures. So that can be corroborated. And right here is a corroboration of that because he says that all things are passed away and all things are become new. Look in the mirror. Have all things passed away? Uh, no, they may be getting closer to it from the mirror's image, but they haven't in a physical sense. But in a spiritual sense, he says, they have. Our old life, our old way is to pass away, and we are to be a new creation, all things created new. So he is doing within us, in our minds, not necessarily our bodies yet, but in our minds, because that's where it shows. doesn't show here. shows in there what he is doing to change us to become something different and something new. So that's why we repent before being baptized. We repent or change from being the way that we always have been 
and start walking in a new direction. Now, that is what repentance is involved in, turning around the way you've always been and headed another way, another direction. That, to God, is the fruit of repentance. You kept Sunday, now you keep Saturday. You kept Christmas and Easter, now you keep the holy days. You ate pig, now you don't eat pig, you eat the clean things of the Bible or of God's creation. Why did he make clean and unclean? There's a lesson there. All about this life from Adam on down is about us getting away from anything unclean and clinging to that which is clean. So even in the animal world, he made both so that we might choose that which is good and clean as opposed to that which was created not for food but for other reasons. But the overall reason being that God has made good things on this earth and bad things. Now, we can go back to creation, and Adam and Eve were living in a perfect envelope of comfort. They were absolutely nude, didn't need clothes, and didn't need covers at night because the temperature was perfect day and night. The humidity level was perfect day and night. There was nothing there to hurt or to harm them in any way. The millennium had come, and then it went away. Now, it's coming back again in two levels, which we'll get to, and that's where I'm partially headed in this. But what came then as a result of their sin in being kicked out of that garden? God said you will suffer. He made briars and thorns and brambles, and the beasts of the field became ravenous and would kill you. The snakes became poisonous and would kill you. Not in the Garden of Eden. Nothing was hurt in all his holy mountain. Now that's the way he started things, and because of what Satan and man did, It all went downhill. So God made a lot of things to cause us trouble. Now, when we moved on this property, when we bought it, there was not one tumbleweed here. There was not one foxtail. There was not one goat head and no cocklebirds. None. It was actually fairly pleasant. There's only one tree, as Nelson said, but hey, we planted some more. But we imported some of the things that God had created when he kicked them out of the garden. We didn't do it on purpose, but they came in in hay bales and on tires, probably mostly hay bales, which had come from fields that had all those things, and the seed were dispersed by the animals and everything else until... They become a plague on us at this point. Could God have prevented that? Certainly he could have. Isn't his goal and his purpose to do that? We are still living in a world that is full of uncleanness of every kind. 
And even though we have separated ourselves somewhat from it, we have not been able to escape it totally. He said, come to the wilderness there in Micah 4, even in Babylon, and there you will be delivered. Now, that's not saying you were delivered simply by coming. Once you get here, for how long, I don't know, then you will be delivered. What did you need to be delivered from? There wasn't any war yet when most of us came here. There wasn't a lot of oppression on us at that time. We didn't have vaccinated and unvaccinated COVIDs around us at the time. We came because we read the command that we should do so. And there are a lot of things we have not yet been delivered from. But he is working within us his salvation, a renewal of the mind and his spirit. So that is the way the new creature is manifested. And all things in your mind are to become new. Not your old way of thinking, not your old way of doing, but a new way. And he is working with us to cause that new way to be abundant. We fight him. There's where the problem lies. We don't want all things new. We want some things of our old mind. We want some things of our old life, whatever they might be. So the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh still dictates too much to us what we think and do. So that willing spirit has to overcome that unwilling flesh. And create new. Now God considers it new when we're baptized and have the laying on of hands. Because that's when his spirit combines with ours to begin a new spiritual life. So he reckons it from them, from there. And what does he do? All your sins from the past. Everything wrong or bad that you ever did or thought is washed away in the blood of Christ. Therefore, the old no longer exists. You don't have to worry about it. It's gone because of his sacrifice. Then you begin walking in the new way. And like a newborn child, you learn in increments. You learn to crawl, you learn to walk, you learn to think, you learn to do. And the analogy is beautiful, clear through. It may be a new life, but it starts in a small way and then grows until we're ready to be born into the kingdom of God as a whole, complete follower of Christ. That's where we're headed. So Paul states that in verse 17, and then he goes on to say, and this is a repeat, I know, but I'm coming at it from a little different direction. All things are new, and all things are of God. Now our mind and our thoughts are with God and on God, and through God this new life proceeds. 
who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So he reconciled our sins in the blood of Christ. We were baptized in the water symbolically washes away our sins through his blood. So it's the water and the blood. And that begins a reconciliation process. Not totally reconciled, because we won't be until we're changed at the moment in the twinkling of an eye, but headed in that direction, just as a born child heads for adulthood. Now, that child has innate within him a desire to be an adult. Children start talking when they're pretty small, about being grown up. They see their parents grown up, and they want to be big, and they want to be mature. They want to be adults. So they, from age three, four, five, six, they start bragging about how old they are. I mean, you're older today. Because they want to be something they have in their mind that they see around them. And that is a strong desire. Now that stays with them until they reach a certain age, and they are adult, and then they start minimizing. I'm, uh, I don't tell when my birthday is. I don't tell how old I am anymore. I reached a goal. Then when they get about 75, 80, 85, they start saying, well, I'm 85 years young. Because now they're going to brag about how old they are. It changes. But here he began a process of reconciliation to himself by Jesus Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We, you and I, are in the process not only of reconciling ourselves, but a service, or a ministry, if you will, of reconciliation, so that by our example, and our turning to God, and Him blessing us, others can see that they need to be reconciled also, that they might receive those blessings. So it is a service to mankind for us to grow toward the goal of being in the kingdom of God. And that desire should be innate within us at this point, as strongly as it is in a child, to get bigger. And to wit, or to understand, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and is committed to us, or put within us, the word of reconciliation. Now, that doesn't tell us that God has reconciled the world yet, but it is his goal and his purpose to get that job done. Now, he started it in us, but he hasn't started it in the world yet. So it is a process. And it says the resurrections come in an order. The first is the best. The second 
is very, very good, excellent, in fact. The third is to death. So each man in his order is a part of a resurrection. So all the world at one time is going to be given opportunity for reconciliation to God. But he's starting it, and did, with the apostles in the New Covenant and those who have been converted since. Now, the biggest numbers were in the apostolic age and here at the end of the age, with a few scattered in between. So he has this thing going right now with us, but he shows us here in this verse, it's not just us, but he's eventually going to do it to everyone. Romans eleven twenty six. all Israel shall be saved. Are they being saved now? No. They're going contrary to God, and they're about to be punished severely unto death for that disobedience. But that death that God is about to lay on over 90% of the earth's population is with the purpose of beginning a reconciliation. Sounds cruel, sounds harsh, but it is a positive move in the right direction because they're not going to listen to him now. They will not listen to his word now, even though they might read it. They will not listen to the two witnesses. They will turn on them, all of them, and kill them because they are not about to be reconciled now. So, God says, all right, you're going to die. Now, when you come up in the great white throne judgment, you'll have a different attitude as you pick the cobwebs out of your hair. And you'll be ready to listen then. And as you listen, a reconciliation to God begins. Now, those who live through this Holocaust into the millennium will begin to be reconciled then because they're going to see the horror of all these people dying and perhaps themselves going without food and water a lot and barely making it into the millennium. Then they will be softened by everything they've seen and experienced and they'll listen for a change. And as we read the other day, if they don't listen, they don't get any rain. And if they still don't listen, the plague comes. So God will put on whatever pressure he has to to reconcile the world to him because he intends for most people ultimately to be saved, each in his own time and way. Now, he has chosen you and me ahead of time, and we didn't choose ourselves. He says very clearly, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So he opens our minds, and we have to respond and repent and be baptized and a new life begun. People in the future are going to have that new life begun in them when they repent, when they have their opportunity. So he has already started the process of reconciling what Adam and Eve did and that we have all followed in the wake of ever since. And he's, he's speaking to the church here, and he says he's given us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. 
We're the only ones that understand the process. The rest of the world out there doesn't grasp what this is about. Even the Christian world has no clue what has to occur in order to be reconciled completely to God. So it's only been given to the church, the true church. So he's not going to impute their trespasses to them. But does he now? Yes. What legal reason does he have to take this nation and kill over 90% of it? The Old Covenant. That was the pact that Israel made with God, and they did not keep it, and they still were not keeping it when Christ was walking the earth, and they're not keeping it today, but they have not been offered the New Covenant yet. Some of them think they have, but they don't even understand what he's talking about. So they don't have it. Oh, God can easily judge this nation, the other Israelite nations, and the world based on the old covenant. And that's exactly what he's going to do. And he will not offer those people the new covenant until they go into the millennium or into the second resurrection. Then it will be offered. And that reconciliation can begin with them. says, then after he will not impute their trespasses, he has already in his own mind decided that their trespasses are going to be forgiven too. But it's yet a future event. But he's already given us the word of reconciliation. So then he says, you are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled. He's given us the opportunity to reconcile. Now we have to follow through and do that and represent his kingdom as ambassadors to the rest of the world. Now that is going to increase dramatically as we get further into the prophecies and his people are gathered to Zion to be a light to the world. And then from there, it goes out as a ministry for three and a half years to warn and teach and point people to God, although they will not respond. So it will get to be a bigger and bigger deal as the months and these next few years go by. But you see the process. Now, I want to go back at this point to some of the end-time prophecies which talk about this. Those prophecies were there when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 5. And they contain this same message of reconciliation for those upon whom the ends of the world have come. And that's partially how we understand how God is going to do some things. I can save this for later, but I think I'll lay it on you right now. As I said on the first day, I grew up from childhood. This is my 68th feast. 
I grew up from childhood <clears throat> thinking that I would be living in the millennium and playing with the snakes and the on as I described. But I didn't understand the time frame of what God is doing. Herbert Armstrong thought we'd be there. We preached Isaiah 11 and 35 that way not knowing that there was more time involved, and indeed, that does not make him a false prophet. Some have thought so, and I've been over this ground before, but he was not a false prophet. He didn't understand the timing. He didn't understand exactly how the events would all go together. He knew there was punishment coming on the Israelite nations. That he knew. But James, Peter, Paul, and John thought it was coming in their lifetime, and it wasn't. Not one of them was a false prophet. There were things they did not yet understand. Daniel was not a false prophet, even though he did not even understand what he wrote. He was writing what God told him to write, and he didn't understand it. God was correct, and Daniel didn't know, and the book was sealed. A lot of people have thought they understood the book of Daniel over the years, and they haven't. It's just now beginning to be unveiled that we might truly understand what it's actually saying. So, <clears throat> some of you have little children. They're going to get to live the millennium, twice. We've been through these scriptures before, but I want to reiterate that millennial conditions are going to return to this earth before Christ's return. Not to this whole earth, but to a very, very small portion of it known as Zion in the Zion area. And God is going to give millennial conditions to his remnant who come out of the world as a witness to the rest of the world how life could be if they would serve God. That is going to be one of the primary Messages from the two witnesses is that those people there whose light is on a hill, Mount Zion, the mountain of God, those people living there have Isaiah 11 and 35. The rattlesnakes won't bite anymore. The foxtails and the goat heads will be gone from Zion. All these things are going to disappear and be replaced by some things we're going to soon read about. And then there will be a message to take to the world. The message isn't all hell, fire, and brimstone. What good does that do? You preach hell, fire, and brimstone and give them plagues because they didn't repent. Now, why did you come to begin to repent? Because you saw that the Bible said to do this and not that, and that if you would do this instead of that, 
God will begin to bless you and pay attention to you, and you would be walking with Him, and life would be better, and you would have a goal and a purpose to grow up as a human being to the fullness of an immortal spirit being in the family of God. You saw that, and that was a carrot in front of you to cause you to change and to grow to achieve that goal. Now, the same is going to be true with the witness that goes to the world. You've got to give them something to repent for, a reason to do it. Is it just a gospel or a ministry of fear? You go out from city to city and say, you better obey God or you're going to die. That's hard rock Baptist. That's not God. No, you go out and say, look at Mount Zion. Look at those people who fled from Jerusalem when the temple was defiled and were protected into Zion, and now they are there, and everything is beautiful. Everything is wonderful. There's no war going on. They're not starving. They have no disease. It's great. Why don't you accept God? And they'll say no. But you've got to give them a chance. got to give them something that they could turn to instead of just saying, you're all sinners, you're going to die. That isn't God's message. God's message is a message, a ministry of reconciliation. They have to be shown that they could be reconciled to God. The whole world, that they could be. Now, God shows us in Isaiah 45 that He is going to uncover His treasures that are hidden. He's going to cause them to be uncovered by an unconverted man. But they'll be used to show the whole world from east to west that God is God. Now, why would He show them to an unconverted man? in hopes that maybe that man might be converted. Because he said, I think, three times right there in Isaiah 45, to that man, you do not know me. You do not know me. But I've taken your hand and I've led you to my things. What did he do with you out there in the world? He took your hand and led you to his things. Led you away from the world to his way. Now, he's going to take somebody in the world and show him who he is. And then he's going to use those treasures that are there to show the whole world who he is. And I don't think it's just the gold and the silver. He's going to use some of it to build his temple. He says the gold and silver is mine in Haggai. But then he is going to turn all that gold and silver over to the beast and the false prophet when they take over the temple. And then the beast 
and the false prophet and the world are going to see that salvation is not in silver and gold. But the world is impressed with silver and gold. They're impressed with wealth. So they'll be impressed when the gold and silver is shown. But that's not going to show them who God is. Gold and silver don't do that. But with the treasures of God in hidden places are records and maps and knowledge of the past, of true history, and probably the mummies of some of God's elect from the past, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Jesus, but the others, because he did die and he did get resurrected. It will be those things from history that God can show were true. The archaeologists are over in the Middle East digging around all over the place trying to prove the Bible wrong. That's really what they're trying to do, not prove it right. But they're over there trying to find the things of the past that indicate what history was about. We, God's church, are going to have those things that the archaeologists are over there trying to dig up. Now, if they dug them up over there and showed them to the world, that would be a witness that God is God. But they won't find them over there. They're in the wrong continent. They're here. And God is going to raise up His church, His remnant, here. And He's going to give those things to them from this worldly Cyrus to use for the right purpose. And they're going to violate it. And the day that they violate it and disdain and pollute his temple is the day, the 1260 days of ministry against the world will begin. Church flees to Zion and the ministry starts. And they preach for three and a half years. That if you would obey God, you'd be blessed. But if you don't obey God, you're going to have plagues. And they will not repent. And plagues will be administered to them. Because before you can reconcile anything, you've got to get somebody's attention. You know? The world isn't going to like it. You know when you pronounce a plague and say it's going to turn your water to blood? They're not going to like it. Oh, they'll hate you even more. Mankind does not like correction. Period. Did your children ever like it? Not so much. You still don't like it. We as normal, carnal human beings, even with the Spirit of God, still resist correction. We don't like it. We don't want to be told the truth about what we ought to be doing. Now, I've sat in services many times listening to somebody preach a sermon. 
been doing it now for most of my life. And you know, sometimes that was pretty hard. Sometimes that was pretty tough, telling me that I needed to change something. Well, you can kind of defray that a little bit because you're in maybe a big group. And the bigger the group it is, the easier it is to defray because they must be talking to, I know who he's talking to, in a small group. It gets to be a bigger group, and it's harder to pinpoint. I wonder who he's talking to. It must be those people over there, because he couldn't be talking to me. But then sometimes, well, yeah, well, maybe I ought to work on that. So we grudgingly say, well, yeah, that's true. It is truth. It's coming from the book, so it must be about me too. Again, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. So it's hard enough to take it in a church service. Now, if it is personal one-on-one, the degree of difficulty goes up exponentially because then you can't blame it on so-and-so over there whom you're sure he's talking about. It's right in your face. And when it's in your face, you as a human being tend to rebel because you're carnal and stiff-necked and hard-hearted and you don't want to be told what to do. That's the American way. Nobody tells me I'm an American. I can do whatever I want. Well, that may have been true for a while. But day by day and month by month, it's getting to the point they're telling you what you are going to do. And some Americans do not like it. And some are going to rebel against it. And we're going to have a civil war because nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's just human nature, is what that is. They don't want God to tell them what they're to do. He tells us, take care of our minds and our bodies because of the temple of the Spirit. But we want to do what we want to do with our mind and body, don't we? And so it's hard for us to always do the right thing for ourselves when we so much desire to do the wrong things. And then when somebody puts it in our face, we really don't like it. But we need to be meek, and we need to be humble, and we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, or rightness, or doing things right. For the good of our body, our mind, and that of the others around us. That we have to do. So the world isn't going to like being corrected. And they will rebel against it with all their beings. And they'll eventually kill the two who have been telling them if they'd obey God, they could be blessed. They ain't buying it. They're not going to be reconciled. So see why he's got to kill them all, nearly all of them? so that they can be humble and meek and listen and be told what to do. If they live into the millennium, they'll have a voice behind them. Hey, buddy, this is the way. Walk in it. Don't you tell me what to do. 
Well, I just did. Walk in it or your knees will break. You got a choice. God is not going to allow murder and lying and thievery and adultery and covetousness and breaking the Sabbath. All ten will not be allowed. If he did not rule with a rod of iron, the world would still not follow him and be reconciled. He's not ruling the world with a rod of iron right now. Satan is increasingly ruling the world with a rod of iron. And that iron is going to get harder and bigger as the months go by in this nation and the world. We are going to be relegated to a third and fourth world nation. And the third and fourth world nations are going to be relegated to tenth world conditions as are we. Americans still don't feel it much. There are countries far, far worse off than we are in being hungry and being mistreated by the government is just part of life. It's just what they live day by day. But it's coming here. And we're spoiled rotten. But we're headed for those conditions. And then the whole world is going to get even worse. Because it's going to be worldwide famine and world war. And people are going to be dying all over the earth. And Israel is not going to be protected anymore. God is going to destroy our mother Israel, Hosea. Do we see what an absolute privilege it is to be right here today keeping the Feast of Tabernacles? What an incredible blessing. These days picture a time of peace on earth. No war, no famine, no disease, no murder, no lying, no banksters, no gangsters. On and on it goes. No locks. All these lock companies out of business. People aren't stealing. You don't need to lock anything. Don't need a key to start a car. Or a horse, if that's what we're driving. Or they're driving. We won't need one then. The world's going to be a completely different place under the rule of Christ. But there again, if he's going to reconcile those carnal people who lived through the seven last plagues to him, he's going to have to rule the world with a rod of iron, and that's exactly what he says he's going to do. It won't be the rod of iron of the Communist Party or the Nazi Party or the Democratic Party. It'll be the rod of righteousness. See, the rod of the world is to get you to sin. The rod of Christ is to get you not to sin, to keep you from sinning. And you will either accept... Yes, you can tell me what to do. I want you to tell me what to do. Please tell me what to do. What a change in attitude that's going to be for the average American on the street today. We are as a nation going to go from 
you ain't telling me what to do, to, would you please tell me what to do? I need to know what to do so that I can be blessed and I can eat and I cannot be murdered. I want to know what to do to get there. Now, we try to short-circuit it, don't we? I want obedient children, but I don't want the process that can cause that. I want to be blessed, but I don't want to obey God so He will bless me. I want peace on earth, but I'm not willing to live in peace with my neighbors. We want all these things. We want plenty to eat, peace, security. But we're going about it in an absolute backward way. If a nation wants peace and security, they figure the way to get it is to go annihilate the nation next to them that's giving them a problem. We have trouble at work. We want to get rid of or fire whoever's giving us a hassle. We get upset in traffic. We want to cuss somebody out or shoot them. Road rage. That's not the way to peace. That just causes more and more and more of it. So we want the things that the Bible promises. Long life, good health. There's one we want. We want good health, but we're not willing to do the things that promote it and achieve it. We don't want to eat the things that come out of the ground the way God created them without pesticides and herbicides and chemicals added and everything good in it taken out of it. We want something that tastes good to us <clears throat> that has no, no nutrition in it. And causes us all kinds of problems. You hardly heard of heart disease when I was a kid. Cancer was almost unheard of. Diabetes was very rare. I'm not that old. And now it's everywhere. Because more and more refined foods. We are willing to put in our bodies Coca-Cola and and what's the one everybody uses that uh, <coughs> I can't even remember and candy and sugar and white flour and homogenized pasteurized milk <coughs> there's hardly anything in a grocery store worth eating that's just a fact even the fruits and vegetables that grew in the ground have had all kinds of junk added to them so you can't go through life right now without having a certain amount of perverted stuff. So what do you do? You make choices. You get the best you can, and you leave the junk alone. There is no place in the life of a Christian for Coke and Pepsi and any of those things there's no point. There's no place in your life for store-bought candy. There's no place in your life as a Christian for the junk processed foods that are there. 
They'll give you cancer and diabetes and heart trouble. And you can't do it perfectly because there's only a certain amount of it there. So all you can do is either grow it, produce it, and pick the best you can out of the grocery store. But you know, some people say, well, it's all no good anyway, so it don't matter what I have. I can have junk food. I can have junk this and junk that. And then we want God to heal us. Dear God, I eat junk. I'm sick. Please heal me. And he says, say what? Huh? Fix it. Repent. Change. Eat the best you can. Do the best you can. Then when you come to me and say, Father, I've, I've been doing the best I can. I, I can't get everything good, but I'm, I've changed this and changed that, and I'm sick. Please heal me. And he'll say, I know how things are. I know you're trying. I see you looking at some labels. I see you putting health above appetite desire for things that taste good to you that aren't good. I see you making that struggle. Therefore, I'm going to have mercy and compassion, and I'm going to heal you because you've been doing the best you could under the circumstance. But I feel like an absolute hypocrite if I go to God and ask for healing, and I'm doing everything abominable that the grocery store offers me. How can I ask in faith? He says the prayer of faith heals the sick. And I'm addicted to junk food. And I go to him feeling like a hypocrite. And a hypocrite is not approaching him in faith, is he? He's saying, hmm. So we like the results of doing things God's way. We just don't like the process. We don't like what it takes. We don't want to change. So the world is going to realize when the millennium starts that they would like to have peace and they would like to have security and plenty and blessings from God. And yet that carnal mind that they lived with in this life, is still going to be there and they're going to start to do the wrong thing and somebody's going to say, nah uh Oh, I'm sorry. I used to think, don't tell me what to do. Now I think, please, I need to know what to do to get the right result. I finally want God's blessing, and I'm willing to do it His way to get it. We want all the good things without doing them His way. <clears throat> With our children, don't spare the rod. Chasten your children. If you don't love them, they're bastards. And He says, if you don't chasten them, you don't love them. 
So we said, but I read this book that says you're supposed to reason with them. No! You take away privileges. You paddle their behinds. You don't slap them in the face. That creates rebellion. You don't hit them with your fist. The behind was made to sit on and to be paddled. And if your kids aren't doing what you tell them to do, then they need some correction. And they don't like it. One of my sons came in one time with a pillow stuffed down behind his pants. He knew it was coming. And he tried to avoid <laughs> the chastening. Well, I thought his behind looked kind of funny, and when I gave him one swat, I knew it was kind of funny. So the pillow came out, and the board came back. They don't like it. But they have to have it in order to control themselves. What is correction for? What does God do with us? As I said before, he takes us as a little babe in Christ, just baptized, just having received his spirit, and then we're to grow until we are a full adult spirit being. That's a process. And in the meantime, as we grow that direction, he says it's not going to be easy and you're going to make mistakes and many are the afflictions of the righteous, but he'll deliver you. He'll not put up on you more than you can bear, just almost, but not quite, more than you can bear. And that you will suffer trials, troubles, and tribulations. And he says if you're one of his children in the Hebrews 12... He will chasten you. And he uses the analogy of a parent there. If you don't chasten your children, then they are bastards because they are, they are living as if they don't have a father. That's what a bastard is. That father is there to correct them and guide them and lead them and not let them have their way and have an easy way that does not lead to character. Your kid is as good as a fatherless child if you don't take the corrective measures to him. The mother the same. Fatherless and motherless if left to himself. And the Proverbs tell us a child left to himself is bring his mother to shame. Because he doesn't learn to control himself. What is that correction there for? It is teach, to teach that child to correct himself, to think rightly and do rightly. So you got a kid that can't control himself and he's always in the cookie bowl. So, whap. It's got to hurt. You're not fondling him. You're hurting him. And then he begins to make an association. If I put my hand in the cookie bowl, I always get smacked. No Oreos. Those are junk food. Maybe homemade ones 
with good ingredients or something as close to it as you can get wherever you can get it. But what he has to learn is that if he doesn't control his hand, that one that goes in the cookie bowl, he gets smacked. And then he begins to make a connection. If I start to and don't and pull my hand back, I don't get smacked. But if I do, here it comes every time. They won't let up. They're consistent. Doesn't do any good to take a chance because I know it's coming. They only need to be told once. I've sat and watched people tell their kids, quieten down. We can't hear. We're trying to talk here. Quieten down. I'm going to come smack you if you don't quieten down. Did you hear me? Yeah, it goes on 10, 12, 15 times. All you need to do is say it once. Quieten down in there. If it doesn't get quiet, you go in and smack them. It's that easy. They learn about you. They learn that you're a four-timer. Or they learn that you're a ten-timer. Or they learn that you're a first-timer. Once. Not the fourth time. Why do you wait till the fourth or the tenth time they're bugging you to tears? Because you're lazy. Because you don't want to administer the punishment. You don't want to be bothered. There could be a myriad of reasons why you let the kid go on ahead and not learn to control himself while you're not controlling yourself and making yourself go do what you know needs to be done. They don't need to be told over and over. How's it going to be in the millennium? You head off to the cookie jar. Don't do that. Oh. Okay, just once. Don't do that. It's that simple. And if you have the right attitude, you'll say, thank you so much, I was about to make a mistake. My children came and thanked me as adults. We didn't like it at the time, but now we appreciate that you made us do what we should do. You taught us how to work. At least you did that. We didn't like it. We wanted to be playing, but you made us work. Now we know how. Thank you. They didn't say that when they were 13. But it yielded the peaceable fruits of righteousness in that area well as they grew up. Your object and God's object His object is apparent with us is to start out with his hands close and helping us obey. And then he hopes we grow to the point we can stand without having to be held up. Now, he's still there to help always. But he's trying to teach us self-control. Teach us to monitor our own thoughts so that they become Christ-like. And your goal with a child is the exact same goal. 
always be there for them, but you're supposed to control them greatly as they're small, and as they learn to control themselves, you don't have to control them as much. But if you don't teach them that control when they're small, then as they get bigger, they still can't control themselves, and oh, they're a mess, even as an adult, because they never learn self-control. They're not going to learn it unless they're taught it. That's why we're doing what we're doing right here today. We're being told to control ourselves, not give in to things that we shouldn't give in to. And when we do give in to those things, then the message gets more severe, doesn't it? And then as we obey, then we don't have to have as much control pushed upon us because we're learning and we're growing. So you should have that child with less and less of your control as it grows because it can keep its own hand out of the cookie jar, because it can, can do what it ought to be doing, so that by the time it's 20, which is when the Bible says is the age of accountability on its own, you have taught it control. And by the age of 20, when it should be an adult, it actually is one. <clears throat> Instead of still living with mommy and daddy at age 30, 35, 40, and still not able to take care of itself, control itself, do things for itself, make a living for itself, and have a separate life, because it's still depending on daddy and mommy to guide and lead and control it, because it never learned to do it himself. Yeah, we love to see well-behaved children. We don't like to see them in the grocery store aisle screaming and hollering and yelling and getting what they want and grabbing stuff off the shelf. We don't like to see that. But we don't like the method that is required in order to get them so they won't be that way. Well... God is working reconciliation in you and me. He started a process since Adam and Eve. He's going to continue it until it covers the whole earth. And the whole world can control itself. He's going to give everybody a chance to be reconciled to him in this life or another physical life to come. I didn't get very far, but uh, this we need. We need to realize He's working with us, that He loves us, that He cares for us. And when we are chastened or punished or go through trials, troubles, and tribulations, there's a reason. He's trying to teach us to do the right thing so that we don't have bad things happening to us. And even as good as we sometimes do, we're still not at His standard. So even though we may have grown some and we're not no longer that tiny babe in Christ. We might be 6 or 8 or 12 years old, spiritually speaking, as we're growing. But we still need a certain amount of trial, tribulation, and testing to see if we will obey or disobey. Because that's what he's doing. He's teaching us to control ourselves. So you think you got something whipped. Okay. 
God may send a test. Oops, I thought I had that under control. It's like bobbing apples. You get one push down, you think, ah, got this, I got it. I'm on, I'm on board now. Got this one apple down. Then the others all bob up. So we work on one thing and we think we get it under control. Okay, I'll go work on this. And that bobs back up. So God keeps testing us to see, are we really growing in character? Can we really control ourselves? Or do we still give in to our appetites, whatever they might be, with junk food, junk drink, junk movies, junk war, uh, video games? There's no room for those. What are they about? Kill, destroy. Mostly, whether it's intergalactic or on earth, most of those games are about destruction and violence and killing. In spirit, they break the law of God completely. And yet we glue ourselves to some of those things hour after hour, day after day, month after month. And some people, that's all they want to do. Shoot, kill, destroy, laser, whatever. I mean, it's in every part of society. There's nothing good out there. It's all a satanic world. So we're told to come out of it and begin to reconcile with God's way and do it in every part of our lives as best we can and then pray for mercy and grace and forgiveness because we can't get it all quite done. But we need to be working at it. We need to cut a lot of stuff out of our lives that are there because we need reconciliation to God in His way. And then ask for blessing, then ask for healing, then ask for the things that you want to have but are not willing to do the things you should to achieve. Now, I haven't told you a thing you don't know. But I've told you some things that you know we need to work on and maybe we need reminded. That's what this is about, is teaching us and then reminding us of the things we need to be doing to achieve success spiritually and even in this life through God's blessing.